Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25 this morning, we're going to be reading the first 12 verses, and we do encourage you to not only come this morning as you have, but to come tonight and to keep the whole day holy unto the Lord, both in morning and evening worship, a great way to bookend your Lord's Day in worship of our great God. Tonight, we'll be looking at the book of Judges, and so encourage you to come back. But Acts chapter 25 this morning, beginning in verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, hanging many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong. As you yourself know very well, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with this council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. I know a man that lived his retirement years largely in his bedroom with the shades drawn, watching the news station 24-7. The result was, not surprisingly, that he was a very depressed and bitter man, which made it even more tragic because the place that he lived sat on one of the most pristine beaches in all of the United States, literally feet from the ocean, with the waves and the seagulls and the beautiful sunsets all around. It was a, a wonderful home, a beautiful home. If you were to rent it for your next beach vacation, no doubt you would pay top dollar to stay in such a place. And yet, that was not his reality. Rather than enjoying the beautiful creation all around him, he fed his mind on the worst of creation, natural disasters, wars, murders, politics, and the likes. Disaster, tragedy, injustice was a daily occurrence. It was daily put before him as he would watch it there on his TV screen. Perhaps you know of someone similar. And what happens is that it completely changes your worldview. It makes you a cynic, a pessimist, a critic of most everything and everyone. How can't it? 
when that is what you are feeding your mind upon day after day. Now, I'm not advocating that you do not know what is going on in the world or that you stick your head in the sand and think that everything is just sunshine and rainbows everywhere because that is not true nor is that reality either. But how is it that we are to view tragedy? How is it that we are to view injustice in the world? Because we see it all around us, don't we? We live in a fallen world. All you have to do is turn on your computer or the TV or read the newspaper, if anybody still does that anymore, and you will find plenty that is sad, depressing, and indeed very tragic. How are we to view such events? Or perhaps when it strikes closer to home, when it's not just a story or perhaps a headline, but it affects you personally, right here, right now, in your very own life. What grounds your worldview? What gives you a strong foundation in the midst of a turbulent world? Well, Paul was a man that knew injustice. He knew tragedy. We have read now in the last four chapters of the book of Acts that Paul has been imprisoned and that he has suffered. And he has suffered terribly. In fact, when Christ called Ananias to go to Paul, you remember the commission that was placed upon Paul's life that Jesus said to Ananias that Paul would suffer much for my name. Well, the Lord obviously was not kidding or joking about that. Paul has already been imprisoned. He has been tortured. He has been abused. And he would spend the remaining years of his life in a Roman imprisonment. How was he to view such events? How are we to view such events? How are we to act when such tragedies and things of the sort happen to us? Well, I think this passage before us this morning helps us. It gives us guidance amidst difficult situations and circumstances. And so I want us to look at it in two points this morning, God's hand and then our hand. First, God's hand. Just a brief recap as we begin this morning, Paul you remember, returned to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. Having been gone for four to five years, he comes back to bring of a report of what the Lord was doing amongst the nations, amongst the Gentiles, and he brings an offering, an alms, to the church there in Jerusalem. Upon his return, he finds out that his character has been attacked, and he agrees to do what the Jewish elders, the elders of the church, ask him to do, and that is to go through a Jewish purification ceremony so that all would see that he is truly a Jewish Christian. And these things that are being said about him are not true. As we saw then, it was not very good advice, and yet Paul submitted to it. And upon doing so, the Jews recognized him there in the temple, and it cost him, so much so that the Roman soldiers have to rescue him. And so they take him into their custody. But this causes a great problem. The Jews are accusing him, saying that he is worthy of death, but Paul is a Roman citizen. 
and therefore he has a right to a trial. So when we come to chapter 25, Paul has been in prison for several years. He has stood before Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune. He has stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and he has stood multiple times before Felix. And now, once again, he comes in front of another Roman governor, this time Festus. And yet every time, justice is not rendered. Rather, it is delayed and delayed and delayed some more. And there we might see the very first aspect of God's hands in our affairs. And that is, it rarely happens when we want it to. We are people that like things instantaneously, right? We want it now. And if we can't have it now, then we want it right now. We don't have time to wait. We become irritated when we don't get things when we want them. And that is becoming more and more true, isn't it? Five-day delivery is now entirely too long. (laughs) Two-day delivery is tolerable, but I would rather have it right now. I would rather have it now. I would rather get it right now. And that's how we want God to work as well. We'd love for there to be a, a God button that says, get answers now. Get results now, because I can't wait. But God is not dictated upon our timeline, is he? His timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. Scripture says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And that can be difficult, especially when we are suffering or in trouble or difficulty. Each day can feel like a thousand years, can it? And we begin to wonder, God, why delay? Do you not know or do you not care? As Paul sat in prison, waiting upon the whims of a Roman ruler and judge, no doubt those thoughts came to mind. But we know that the Lord does care. His care is demonstrated in knowing what is best when. Recently, I said no to one of my children who asked for a treat because dinner was coming upon us. And the response was, don't you love me? (laughs) To which I said, I do love you. I love you enough to say no. Knowing what is best for you. And if that is true of us, if that is true of me as a father, and I'm an imperfect father at that, how much more our heavenly father, who is not imperfect, but infinitely perfect. That means his yes and even his no's are perfect. And there are times that we'll plead to the father, and he'll say no. Or perhaps he'll say, not now. And we have to rest in that. We have to find contentment amidst seemingly closed doors. As you know, I love the Psalms. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 27, a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of confidence in the Lord, the Lord's provision, the Lord's protection, the Lord's deliverance. And yet it ends with these words in 
Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage and wait for the Lord. David had to do that often, didn't he? So did the Apostle Paul. So do all saints in following the Lord's way and the Lord's will. Paul had been promised of the Lord that he would testify before Rome and the rulers in Rome. But in the meantime, there was a lot of waiting. But that does not mean that there was nothing happening. And that's what we see in our passage, the very beginning this morning. We have read that Felix was given many opportunities to do what was right, to do what was right for justice, to do what was right for Paul, for him even to do what was right for his own life through repentance and faith in Christ. But he did not. He tarried, he delayed until it was too late and he was replaced. In fact, history tells us that Felix was such a bad governor one that did not look out for the interest of those that were underneath him, underneath his rule. He was only looking out for his own affairs, that there was a riot and a protest of his rule and his reign. And that became known all the way to Caesar in Rome. And so Nero had him replaced, had him removed with Portius Festus. What a name. Those of you that are looking for baby names, here's a possibility for you. It is biblical. It's right there in the Bible. But Festus does what any good politician would do. He saw what was the downfall of his predecessor, and he tries to do the opposite. See, Felix delayed, and so Festus wants to be Johnny on the spot. He wants to know what he has to deal with, the problems that are left over from the one that was before him. And so the Jews immediately bring Paul, or at least his case, before him. And it says in verse 3 that they asked a favor, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, that is, Paul. But we read the true reason, because they are planning an ambush to kill him on the way. They deemed Paul worthy of death. And in many ways, they were probably annoyed that they had to go through the Roman procedures in order to do so. It shows that they were subjugated to the Roman government. They had to play by the Roman rules. And so they tried to twist it in such a way to, to use the Roman official, to use the Roman governor to do that which they ultimately wanted to do, which was to put him to death. But we see that their plan was thwarted. Because Festus tells them that he plans to go to Caesarea soon. So there's no use in bringing Paul to Jerusalem because he was going to go there. If they want to bring charges against him, they are to go there too and do so in that place, not in Jerusalem. Now we can read words like that and move right along. We can think this is just informational, which it is. But do you not see the Lord's hand in all of this? Do you not see the Lord thwarting the plans of the Jews, ultimately thwarting the plans of the evil one? And you might read this passage and go, hold up, pastor, I, I don't read anything about God doing anything in these first four verses. God is not even mentioned, but he doesn't have to be, does he? God is over all, in all, and above all. This is what we read 
earlier in our confession of faith, wasn't it? In that act of the decrees of God and God's providence. We read a little bit fuller definition of providence in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, when it says, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. You hear what it says? All things, from the greatest to the least. Now, does all things mean all things? Yes, all things means all things. See, this doctrine flies in the face of the idea that God just began the world. He, he got it started and then kind of checked out, took a, a step back. And perhaps he, he checks in on occasions, perhaps when things are going really, really bad, maybe he'll get his hands involved, get his hands dirty, but otherwise he is inattentive to what is going on. That is not what we believe. Listen to what I say. We do not have an absentee father. We have a father that cares for every need. And every circumstance we endure. And he's over and above it all. Though we don't always know it, nor are we always aware of it. Surely that was the case with Paul. As he sat there in a Roman prison, he must have thought that God was not doing anything according to his case. As he sat there for multiple years in a Roman Caesarean prison. But what we see in these few verses here is that there was a lot going on. In fact, there was another plot for his death. And that plot was thwarted by Festus. And we might think that this was just Festus' decision and therefore it was kind of a a lucky break. You know, Festus could have gone either way. It was kind of a 50-50. But let me tell you, there are no 50-50 decisions in God's plan. There's God's plan and there is no others. In fact, we read in Proverbs chapter 21 that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, He turns it wherever he wishes. Do you hear what that verse is saying? That even the most pagan Roman governor that had no relationship with God, who probably did not even acknowledge a a greater God, his heart, his mind, his decisions are in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord directs it wherever he wishes. Festus was a pawn in the hands of our God. And the same is true in all circumstances, in all situations. God is in control, even when it appears he may not be. And that is true on the global scale, as well as on the individual scale. From the great and the grand, to even our little lives. As the confession says, he governs all from the greatest to the least. And so we cannot say, sure, he cares about just wars and gross injustice, but he doesn't care about my situation. He doesn't care about little itty-bitty me. Surely not. And I could say on the authority of God's word, surely yes, he does. And so, therefore, we can trust him, right? We can trust him. We can cast all of our anxiety 
all of our worry upon him because he cares for us. We need not worry. We need not be anxious. There's a great quote that I've shared with several of you. It comes from Pastor Kevin DeYoung. And he says this, anxiety is mentally living out the future before it gets here. Whereas faith is trusting that when the future comes, our Father will be there to give us what is needed. Do you hear what he is saying? Anxiety is when we think through all of what can happen or may happen or might happen and we begin to worry, we begin to fret because what happens with our mind, we always think of worst case scenario, don't we? But what Pastor DeYoung is saying is faith is living out that when this future comes, whatever it may be, our Father will give us what we need in that moment. Is that not true? Have you not seen how God has done this in your life? And so why do we worry? Why do we fret? Why do we always think about the what ifs? Has our God not been faithful? Has he been an absentee father in your life? No, he has not. Never. He has always given us our daily bread. And it's the daily provision of need, isn't it? You remember in the Old Testament, the Israelites could only gather enough manna for that day. They couldn't gather for two days. They couldn't gather for the whole week. They couldn't put it in the, their cupboards or their you know, pantries or their refrigerators. They could only get enough that they could consume in one day. In the same way, the Lord provides for us. He gives us the strength that we need for this day. In fact, he tells us, do not worry about tomorrow. Why? Because today has enough difficulties. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so, therefore, deal with today's trouble, not tomorrow's or next week's or a year's. God's hand is always sufficient in all of our circumstances. Well, second, then, if that is true of God's hand, what is true of our hand? Because the question might be asked, if God is sovereign, what do I need to do? Do I need to do anything at all? And the answer is yes. Yes, God is sovereign. And yes, you need to do all that you can do and are able to do. That those things are not mutually exclusive. They do work, pun intended, hand in hand. In other words, we do not need to think that, you know what, I just need to let go and let God. Or I need to let Jesus take the wheel. Now, do we need to give control over to God of our situation? Absolutely. But the reality is we were never in control anyway. Jesus always has the wheel, right? Praise God. But that does not mean that we do not try to direct our life in the best path forward. We see that in this passage as well with the Apostle Paul. Festix makes true on his word that he would shortly go to Caesarea, and it says in about eight or ten days he goes down there, and Paul comes before him, and it says, verse 7, the accusers, the Jews, bring many serious charges against him, but yet they could not prove them because they are false. And so Paul stands again before a Roman governor, a Roman judge, and argues his own defense. Verse 8, and like Felix before him, even like Pontius Pilate with Jesus 
Festus was more concerned with the popular decision of the day than the right decision. And so it says, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he asked, you want to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on those charges before you? As R.C. Sproul says in his commentary, Lady Justice again takes her blindfold off to see which way the wind was blowing before she reached a verdict. And we've seen that often, haven't we? But Paul knows the heart of the Jews, the supposed religious leaders of the day. He knew that he would not get a fair trial from them. He would rather be put in the hands of pagans than them, which was quite an indictment. And so in the end, Paul appeals to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. Now I want us to notice a few things about this. Again, we can just read through this and and not think about it, not ponder upon it and not apply it to our lives. But we need to first think, Paul didn't just go along with that which was before him, that which was in front of him. He didn't just say, you know what, Festus wants me to go to Jerusalem, so you know what, that must be the will of the Lord. I'm going to do that. No, Paul used wisdom. He used discretion. He knew what that would mean, that if you would go to Jerusalem, that perhaps there would be a plot along the way, which we know was the case, what was going to happen. We know that he has already stood before the Sanhedrin, and, and there he knew that he would not get a, a fair and, and partial, uh, impartial trial. And so, therefore, he goes, no, I don't want to go that route. I want to go this route. I would rather go to Rome than to go to Jerusalem. He used wisdom. And direction. He didn't just say, you know what, this is what seems to be, quote unquote, providential because it's been brought before me. In other words, he does not check his brain at the door. And we must do the same. When we are trying to discern the Lord's will, we don't just go, well, this is what's been laid before me, so this is what must be what God wants for me. So this week, if you come to me and, and say to me that you got a great job offer in Fargo, North Dakota, My first response is not going to be, praise the Lord, this must be the will of God. When are you going to pack your bags? No, I'm going to have a lot of questions for you, and hopefully questions that you have thought through already. Because I'm not saying that it isn't the will of the Lord, but you need to use wisdom. You need to use discernment. You need not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, nor every opportunity that comes your way, and just think, well, This must be God's will for me. No, we are not to be just blown by the wind here and there. It's not how we are to live our life. It's not how Paul lived his life. He discerned what was best, and he acted accordingly. In this case, he appeals to Caesar and and to Rome. And so, therefore, we need to be thinking Christians. We need to be discerning Christians, And once we think and once we use discernment and use the wisdom that God has given to us, then we act in either by doing it or not doing it and going in a different direction. We need not wonder, is this is the Lord's will or is that not the Lord's will? I I just don't know. No, or to use wisdom and seek wisdom and then do it or not do it. And so let me speak very specifically to some of you young men in this congregation. I can speak to young women. It applies to young women as well. But I think young men especially have a problem with this. Have a purpose. Have a plan. 
and then pursue it. Don't wonder, why is there nothing happening in my life? And it's because you're sitting in your, basement, your parents' basement playing video games, okay? <laughs> nothing is going to happen. And I don't say that to, to shame you, not completely at least, but rather to say, seek out those that you admire, those that, that have a plan, that have purpose, and say, how, how do I get that? How do I gain that? How do I go forward? Life is too short. Purpose, plan, pursue. And I want to address one other thing on this. One thing that I've heard before about people that have read this passage about Paul's situation, and they say something like this. Well, Paul doesn't seem very Christ-like. He tried to defend himself. He tried to appeal, and then he appeals again, and he appeals another time. Didn't Christ just accept what was before him when he was put on trial? Doesn't it say in Isaiah 53 that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth? Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so if we're to be Christ-like, aren't we to do the same? Aren't we to just suffer in silence? Aren't we to just take what comes? Because again, that must be the will of the Lord. I tell you, we must stop that type of thinking. Christ's mission was unique. Yes, we are to be Christ-like, but that does not mean that our calling is the same as Christ. Christ was called to give his life as a ransom for many. So yes, he was quiet. He was silent because he was ultimately submitting to his Father's will. None of us have that mission, not even the Apostle Paul. Now, would Paul ultimately die for his faith? Yes, but Paul also did not have a martyr's complex, and neither should we. Paul was seeking his freedom, and he was using the means at his disposal. In this case, he was using the Roman legal system, and so too should we. If God has given us the means to fight injustice or wrongdoing, that is not anti-God's will. That, in fact, may be the way that God is using through his providential means to help us. There's a somewhat, well, it is fictional, but somewhat humorous story of a pastor and a flood that came to this pastor while he was at church. And it says that the, the water's began to, to rise, and a person comes in a canoe and says, you better get in, preacher. The waters are, are rising fast. And the preacher says to this man in the canoe, no, I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. And so he continues to pray, and the waters get higher and higher. And therefore, another guy comes in a, a motorboat and says, come on, preacher, we need to get you out of here. The levee is about to break any minute. The preacher, still unmoved, says, no, I'm going to remain. The Lord will see me through this. Well, the levee does indeed break, and the flood rushes over the church until only the steeple remains, and there the preacher is holding on to the steeple, clinging to the cross, when a helicopter descends out of the cloud, and a voice from a megaphone says, grab the ladder, preacher, this is your last chance and the preacher cries out, no, no, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Well, the preacher drowns. 
and goes to heaven. And he says, Lord, I, I had unwavering faith in you. What happened? Why didn't you deliver me? To which the Lord says, we're not two boats and a helicopter that I sent enough. It's obviously an extreme version, but yet, when we say that the Lord is sovereign, that does not mean that he's going to use supernatural or miraculous means to bring about his will and his way in your life. He hardly ever does that. His help comes through very normal means. If you're struggling health-wise, you shouldn't just say, well, I'm just going to pray about it. Just continue to commit to the Lord in prayer. No, you should do that, along with change your diet and your lifestyle and go to those that can help you with it. If you're struggling with your, your marriage or your parenting, you shouldn't just say, you know what, we just need to pray and read the Bible some more. Well, do that, but also seek out your pastors and seek out your elders and other godly people in your church that can help you and give you good wisdom, good counsel, good advice. If you're looking for a job or, or young people, again, if you're looking for a college, you, you pray and you pray and you pray some more, but you also network and you look at postings and you, you visit and you apply and see which way the Lord will direct through the positions that are offered to you or the places that you can go. Again, if you have legal problems or any other problems or difficulty, use the means that God has given to you. That is not anti-spiritual. That does not demonstrate a lack of faith. All of it is God's world, right? Therefore, it's ultimately by God's hand. And he works in and through our hands, in and through our deeds, in and through our actions that he calls us to do. And so therefore, we are not to play the victim of our circumstances. We're not to be a martyr. That's never our role. Yes, can we be victimized, perhaps, and maybe even perhaps be a literal martyr? But if the Lord gives a way for justice, take it. If the Lord provides an open door, go through it if that is what you discern to be best. He is not going to write it in the sky and say, go this way, dummy, even though we may like him to do so. Why? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. And none of these things are easy. None of these things lessen the challenges and the difficulties and our wrestling with God at times. Especially when we have real hurts and real pains that we are experiencing. And there is real sorrow and there are times real tears where we ask and we cry out to God, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you not remember me or remember my cause? And we may never have resolution in the way that we desire to have resolution, not in this life at least. But even then, we are reminded that our Lord knows injustice. He knows pain. He knows suffering. He's not unaccustomed to tears. He knows trials. He knows tribulation. And yes, he even knows death itself in the most cruel and 
inhumane way possible. Our Lord is not immune or unmoved by these things. And yet he has endured them all for our sake, for our redemption, for our rescue, for our salvation. And in return, we may need to endure these things for his sake. And even if they are for a lifetime, they will not be for all of eternity. And so, therefore, all of these things are momentary. And the Apostle Paul would even say lights in the light of eternity. Because your ultimate rescue, your ultimate redemption, your justice and salvation is coming. It comes in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ, either you going to him or him coming to us. And when it does, oh, it'll be sweet. It will truly be glorious. And so when we turn on the news, or when we read of events, or when we endure them in our own lives, we can say along with the hymn writer and that song that we just sang, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Amen. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, these words are comforting to us. In some ways, they are convicting because we recognize how often we have been anxious, how often we've been worried, how we look at the world and we wonder what the direction is and where things are going, Lord, culturally, where things are going, even in our own lives or the life of our family, Lord, and how often we fret and worry rather than bring it to you in prayer and leave it at your feet and know that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are sovereign over every single molecule, every single hair upon our heads. None of it can be outside of your will. Lord, you have not lost control. You have not taken your hands off the wheel. You are completely in control of all things, even us. And we praise you for that. And Lord, as we confess that, Lord, we pray that you would have our feet to be swift, to do the, the works of justice and to help those that are in need. Lord, to, to relieve the, the burden of those that are burdened with a load and Lord, to act in such a way that would show wisdom and discernment that would help others, Lord, by our counsel and through our good deeds and through our works. And Lord, also by the work of our hands, would you provide for us, Lord? You know that you give us our daily bread. That does not mean that it falls from heaven, Lord. It's by the means of, a, uh, of employment and, and through work and through a paycheck, Lord. And so would we be reminded as we give you thanks that all of these things are by you. They're not by our hands, by any means. But Lord, we thank you for giving us our daily bread. Thank you for giving us our portion. And Lord, ultimately, thank you for giving us your son, our savior, by which we have salvation by which we have redemption, and in that we rejoice this day and indeed for all eternity. For we pray this in Christ, our Savior's name.